Islam Khan. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, it's great to be here and I'm very excited to talk about science, cosmology and physics. Yes, so you're the first cosmologist I have on on the show. Uh, I have had an, a different scientist who studied the who studies the origins of life, uh, Ben Pierce, and so we've talked about space a little bit already on this show, but not about what uh, you refer to as early universe cosmology. So first things first, why don't you tell me what does a cosmologist do? Okay, so cosmology, it's the science of the universe. So it's telling you things about how the universe formed, the origins of the universe, how it evolved over time, and how it ended up to the state that it is now. So it has a lot of you know, unknown things uh, currently because 95% of the universe we still have no clue about. So cosmology is just answering questions that we are n- nowhere close to, in my opinion. Okay. Yeah. And so what's uh, what's fun uh, for my viewers is that um, Islam and I are actually doing this on video so we can see each other. And what I absolutely adore so far is that Islam has a huge smile on his face, which to me indicates that this is a guy who's super passionate about this topic. And so um, I'm curious real quickly here, if you can tell me, how the heck did you get into studying this topic in the first place? So my story is... Um, so I've been curious about these topics for as long as I can remember. So when I was younger, I used to spend all my time watching documentaries on space exploration, documentaries on the cosmos, like um, dark energy, dark matter, where all this comes from. So the unknowns of the universe always fascinated me a lot. And seeing the vast number of things that we have no idea about and the big questions like, what's the origin of the universe. And so before coming to what's the origin of life, you have to think about where the origin of the universe is. And those could be connected. So there are philosophical ideas that you know, connects life and the universe. Like that life, the universe only formed uh, and it's the way it is now because there's a conscious who can study it. So there are theories like that. So I'll talk about that later. Um, so, really got into these topics on, on cosmology in this field when I was in A-level. So in my country, we don't have high school. We have O-levels and A-levels. We follow Cambridge. Um, so When you say your country, you mean Bangladesh? Bangladesh, yeah. So yes. we, Bangladesh, we follow the curriculum of uh, British. So we have A-levels. So we had to take classes, um, courses on astrophysics, particle physics, and all that. And seeing things like we have no clue about the fate of the universe. We don't know, is it going to be expanding and stretching out forever? Or is it going to contract? Is it going to keep bouncing? So seeing this, like we have no idea about how the universe is going to evolve in the future. We're not going to be around to see it, but a lot of things could be happening. Or if there's multiple universes. Like, so seeing all of that is very, very fascinating for me. I, I'm like we can't actually do research on the unknowns of the universe, like multiverse and all that, right away. But we can start somewhere. So that's where I that's what I did. So I came to US to do my undergrad because our country we don't really have good physics programs. So that was always the plan: pursue physics, 
get an undergrad, um, get a bachelor's degree, get a PhD, postdoc, and then see what happens. But it's going to be exploring science. That's really cool. I have to I have to ask this question because you use a few words right now when you were talking like bouncing and stretching. It, to me, that's that seems so um, kind of abstract, and and I don't understand. Is the universe kind of like a ball, or is it kind of like an elastic? Um, so there, you have to look at it two different. Uh, you have to look at it differently. First is the universe. The way the model is is infinite. So there is no way to picture the universe because it's infinite or it's so large that we cannot never see the end or maybe doesn't have an edge. The other way is observable universe. So if we're from where we are, from our perspective, we look at every direction, we can see until a certain point because light travels at a limited speed. So it travels, it can travel 13.7 billion light years. So that's about, I think, 46 uh, billion light years in diameter or radius. So our observable universe is a ball because we can look that far in every direction. But the actual universe, the model is, is infinite. And it could have multiple bubbles of universes. So those are things that I'll get into later. So the okay, multiverse. So that's what you mean by multiverse, essentially. Yeah, no, so multiverse has four different levels, and I'll um, actually have to get deep into that. But the model is it's infinite in every direction. So regardless of uh, if you're like looking at the universe from outside the universe, if you could do that, then it would just be an infinite space, and lots of things could happen in between that, depending on what the um, you know theories are predicting but still infinite. Okay, so for people like myself who are know nothing about space other than how pretty the stars are, um, so something like, uh, the we know that Earth is in the Milky Way galaxy, mm-hmm. and then the Milky Way galaxy is inside of what? So the Milky Way galaxy, so if you increase the scale, so mm-hmm. we are um, part of a local group, um, so it's like um, if you go to higher and higher scale, you end up seeing a cosmic web. So it looks like a web because um, that's what it looks like. So when you see a web and you compare the sim- simulation, we can actually see that far. We can see some of it, uh, but it looks like um, a structure of a web because most of the galaxies and the stars are within those uh, dense regions. So you go to higher and higher scale, you have um, multiple galaxies together, bounded together, and then you have the local group and you go higher. So these have different names. I don't remember all the names at the top of my head, but larger scale, you end up seeing this uh, web kind of structure. And we are in one of those uh, you know, dense regions. Yeah, I, I mean, it's really just the reason I brought it up is really to just give the scale of what a universe is, right? I mean, it's 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 just, like you said, the observable universe includes us in it. It includes Jupiter. It includes the Milky Way galaxy, right? It includes all of these um, various galaxies within it, correct? So these galaxies are very, very close to us. Um, the observable universe goes way back. It's much, much larger. So... 
uh, it's hard to explain what 46 billion light years is. So light taking uh, can travel. We can see um, the distance is uh, 46 uh, billion light years. But you can think of it as light traveling for about 14 billion years. So light traveling for 14 billion years, that's how far it goes. That's the size of the observable That's large. <laughs> that's... I, I... That's that's crazy. It's crazy that it is so big out there. Yeah. So the interesting thing is, this appears large to us, but this is a very very tiny part of the entire universe. That's what makes cosmology so fascinating, is because the the part we can see, space looks vast, but if you look at the model, the theories, it's predicting that there are infinite number of observable universe. So what we can see, there are infinite number of this um, observable universe depending on where you are. So we are looking at a very, very small portion, a very tiny portion actually. Wow, I mean, really. And I know we're not we're not uh, specifically speaking about life in 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 other places, but I have to ask you just out of curiosity, as a human being, and with the knowledge that you have, do you think we're alone? Uh, not likely. Uh, and it goes back to what I said uh, previously. It's because the universe is so vast. Um, so our observable universe is large enough to have multiple life forms, even though we haven't seen one, but. You know, Perseverance just landed on Mars, so let's see what happens. Um, yeah. But if you look at the entire universe, um, even though we are not in contact with them, even though they're beyond our horizon, uh, there could be, there's a very, very high chance there's life's, multiple <laughs> life forms out there. Um, do you think that, uh, do you think that science will, will find them before, uh, before you die? Um, I'm hopeful that at least we'll be able to find microbes. And it's a very active field right now. So currently there's a lot of push on finding uh, life out there. Recently there was an um, observation on, uh, there was a prediction or like observation and speculation that there could be life on the clouds of Venus, but it turned out that's not the case, but people are still uh, pushing for it and looking probably beyond the solar system not right away, but in the future. But within next 40, 50 years, I think we'll find something. Yeah, I, I really think so too. I mean, we could, who knows, we might find a microbe in the in the Martian soil that we bring back, right? I mean, that's a very real possibility. Yeah, 2026, that's when it's coming back. Uh, so we got to wait and <laughs> keep our fingers crossed, I guess. Exactly. Uh, so let's get into it, because I know that you're super excited to speak about multiverse theory. I have no idea what it is. Um, give me the general lowdown. Uh, what is a multiverse? Um, okay, so I need to start from the bottom. Um, so this is something I actually work on. So I work on the inflation theory. Uh, so the inflation theory is um, telling you that the universe underwent a very rapid stretching, a period of very rapid stretching. So I'm saying stretching and not expand, because when I say expand, it gives the idea that, oh, maybe the universe was tiny and then it expanded over time. But actually it was always infinite. 
a small portion, a very, very tiny portion stressed out over time. Um, if you look at a small portion, yeah, you can say it expands, but then it gives you the idea that the universe is finite, but it's actually infinite. So I'm going to interrupt you right here, just for a second here, just to to, to ask you a question about that point. Um, how do how does if sci if uh, if the universe is is so large, how does science know that it um, has stretched? Yeah, so I'm, so that's the interesting thing. So we have many observations from before, um, and inflation actually solves them. So for example, um, if you look at one direction and you measure like one patch of the sky and you measure the temperature, and then you look at another direction and you measure the temperature, and let's say the temperatures are the same. It's about, let's say, three kelvins, very close to zero. So the question is, how can this point, this patch of the sky, have the same temperature as that patch of the sky, even though they have never been in you know, connection? They were never in contact. So that, that was a question, and no one knew how to solve that. And another thing was um, why the universe is so flat. So imagine you are sitting on a painting, and it's all scribbles of different colors. And you can see the scribbles. Um, but let's say the painting stretched out very rapidly, very, very large. Then you would only see one color. You would not see the scribbles anymore. It's going to look, you'll just see one color, and you would never know that there were scribbles before. So our universe appears to be flat. It means something happened which smoothened it out. So there are multiple. Uh, there are more questions like, um, I'm not going to get into that. Like there could be monopoles, the predictions of monopoles, that's a different thing. But the thing is, um, we can observe two different points and see that there's no way they have the same temperatures if they're never connected. So inflation answers or solves this problem, because if inflation did take place, it would explain why our universe is so flat, why it smoothened out, and how can different parts of the universe have the same temperature. So these observations gave clues that the universe um, stretched out so rapidly. Um, and when I say stretched out rapidly, um, you have to think about the scale of the stretching. So a size which was um, much, much smaller than the size of the proton um, expanded to the observable universe. So it's much smaller than a proton. Imagine that uh, tiny bit expanding to the observable universe. That's how much it expanded. And that's how flat the universe is. So seeing those um, observations, the inflation was first um, developed by Alan Guth in 19... 81, actually 79, he had it down on his notes. And that's how um, it solved the problems. And we know that it stretched out so much. And if it did stretch out so much, that means the universe must be very, very large. And it goes way beyond what we can see. Wow. Okay. So, okay. So that's inflation. Now, what I hear from multiverse is several universes. Yes. Yeah, so, multiverse is a consequence of inflation. So, oh. so because inflation had to take place to solve these problems, then it has these consequences, which is um, you would have multiverses. So let me go over 
what multiverse is. I know there are movies um, and a lot of different movies use parallel universe and all those theories, um, but it kind of changed what it actually is. Um, so we should not even use the word parallel universe. It's all multiverse. Uh, so let me talk about level one multiverse. So Max Tegmark, he defined what each of these are because you have four different levels of multiverse. The first one is simple. It's just saying that our observable universe is finite. We cannot look beyond it. So there could be another universe which is far away from ours. We are not in causal contact. So when it's a causal contact, it means light from our universe is never going to reach the other universe. So we are getting separated over time. So there is no way we can ever contact them. So that is a multiverse. It's so far away from us that we cannot contact them. Uh, we don't know what's happening there, but it's, it's likely that it's very similar to ours. The temperature, the galaxies, uh, how it ends, planets forming. So that's level one multiverse. It's just saying it's finite distant away, um, but we can never connect them. Uh, so that's why it's a multiverse. So what in, inflation is saying is that um, so it comes from quantum mechanics. So inflation, so I'll get into quantum mechanics probably later. So inflate on field. So inflation is caused by a field, a quantum field. So a quantum field is how we define particles in particle physics. So there is no such thing as a particle, but fields. And once you put enough energy, they get excited. And that's why we see particles. You may have heard about the Higgs boson, um, the Higgs boson, the God particle. So it's actually the Higgs field uh, that's always there. If you pump enough energy, then you can see the Higgs boson. So the inflaton field uh, is a quantum field, which has this property that it spreads out. Uh, so it's a quantum, it's quantum mechanics has many different uh, weird properties, one of them. So I know I'm getting into. <laughs> it's like okay, keep going. So the thing is that the inflaton field can, it spreads out, it has a property. And because of this, it affects different regions of the universe differently. So it, it, in our universe, inflation happened and it stopped. But in a different region, maybe inflation is still taking place. Maybe another region, um, the inflation was much shorter or longer. So depending on how it affected each region, you have different bubbles, or you could think of um, multiverse, the level one multiverses embedded into bubble universes. So you know how you see in animations that you have blank um, blank space and you have bubbles of universes? That's what it's referring to. That's level two multiverse uh, because not only um, are they very far apart, uh, we can never be in con contact with them and we can't even detect them because we, are, we, we can't even see beyond our observable universe. But think about other bubble universes which are way beyond. So that's level two multiverse. And it gets more and more complex as you go to level three. So level three multiverse is coming from, it's called many worlds interpretation. Um, 
so our manual theory. So this is very popular in a popular science because it talks about doppelgangers and uh, explaining things like, oh, the only reason you are doing this, you made this decision is because in the other alternate universes, it made the other choices. So it's popular, but if you want to understand what the many worlds interpretation is, it's just saying that to give a simple example, if I roll a dice, it has six sides. So if I roll a dice and I get a six, that means right when I rolled it, all the universe just split into six different universes. And in each different universe, you had each number. You had one to six. So what it's saying is every time anyone makes a decision or any time anything happens, the universe splits up and the other things, the alternative things happen in the other universes. So the question is, when you say split up, do you have copies of yourself or not? So that so we don't really have an answer to that. There are different ways to explain it. Maybe it's all abstract or maybe it's physical. Maybe it does split up. But the key idea is uh, every alternate things happen at once. So whatever um, happening now. So I'm talking to you right now. Let's say I decide to um, you know, stop the recording or something. So in another, so immediately um, it would split up. It would be different universe. And in the other universe, I did the other thing, which I continue talking. So every time anyone makes any decision, you have in um, multiple copies of the universe. Um, so that's very complex. That's the idea of uh, level three multiverse. And Max Tegmar can explain this way better than I can. <laughs> um, so that's level three. Level four is very abstract. Level four is telling you that maybe very, very far away, the universes don't even have the same physics laws that we have. So maybe the laws are different, so everything looks different. Um, maybe what we see as a circular motion, maybe it's the motion is uh, has a different shape or something. So level four, it's kind of abstract. Uh, we can stop at level three because four, none of us understand it because we only understand the physics laws in our universe, but it could be very different in the other universes. So yeah, so that's level one to four in summary and Max Tegmark has uh, a podcast episode. So Tron Carroll has a podcast, Mindscape, and they talk about this for a long time. And they go into great details on the different levels of multiverse. I didn't know that multiverse was what people were referring to in pop culture as parallel universes. So that was very helpful uh, for me to understand that when you said, oh, yeah, in pop culture, it's called this. I was like, Okay. Um, so now I have a bazillion questions, of course. <laughs> the first one being on I'm I'm kind of fixated on this um this third uh, many worlds theory because it's something I've always kind of said, yeah, right. You know, like come on, there's no way there's like physical copies of each other on different universes and and all that stuff. But I mean, is it really a possibility that there could be? So right now we can prove that it's not true, but we can't prove that it's true either because these are all based on theories and these are, it's called interpretation. So this is one interpretation of our reality. So it's telling you, um, so 
you may have heard of uh, the Schrodinger's cat. So this is what the theory was before um, the many worlds interpretation, saying that. So I'm going to use a scientific term. It's called wave function collapsing. So it's like um, when the cat is in the box, it's both dead and alive at the same time. But once you open the box, then the wave function collapses, means it just lands on one of them, one of the possibilities. This is what the previous um, um, explanation was. But the person, uh, Edwin Schrodinger, he wasn't happy with this. It was like, we cannot observe and change you know, the outcome. That sounds absurd. So that's where the many worlds interpretation came from. This is more satisfactory. Uh, and it's not actually, um, oh, it is um, Schrodinger, but I think it was Hugh Everett. He's the one who um, wrote it down in mathematical forms while he was a PhD student at Princeton. So he came up with this theory, even though it didn't get a lot of attention then. Like this explanation is way more satisfying than saying you observe something and you affect the outcome. The many worlds interpretation is saying you observe something, you have you are seeing something, but at the same time there are multiple splits and copies of yourself. But there's no way we can prove it or disprove it. It's just, you know, fun things to think about. Um, um, maybe in the future, who knows, but nowhere, we have more important questions in cosmology to answer before getting there. It makes for good movies, at least, right? I mean, <laughs> really, this is all stuff that it makes for really great science fiction, great storytelling. Um, what about, I mean, I've, I've heard some um, some talk about the, the potential that maybe we're living in a simulation, right? I mean, you hear some people say, oh, this is all just AI. We've actually previously existed. We've built all this, this kind of existence. Um, what about that? Uh, those possibility are say. speculations, and I'm not going to go into those because they're not really predictions of um, cosmology or particle physics or quantum mechanics the way we understand it. As actually, no one understands quantum mechanics; you just get used to it. Because if you think you understand quantum mechanics, then that means you don't actually get it because <laughs> it doesn't make sense. So the simulations and all that, those are speculations, and I don't really understand where they come from. But based on quantum mechanics that we understand and cosmology and all this, uh, those are kind of different because multiverse is the implication of inflation, and that seems to be you know more plausible than any of those other you know theories about you know holographic universe and all that right i mean I, I it's worth asking right ask the scientist and you'll find out the answers if you can um what uh one one thing that i'm really curious about you said oh well you know this uh, stretching was caused by inflation um what actually do we know what caused the inflation um we have a pretty good idea of what may have caused it there are multiple theories, obviously, but the most popular one is telling you that. So it's actually pretty um, easy to model it. You can think of um, a ball and a hill, and the ball is slowly rolling down the hill. So we can actually like even picture it. Like you have a ball and it's slowly rolling, and when it's rolling, then it has to satisfy certain conditions, and when it does. So the only way to show it that it affects 
you know the expansion of the universe is by mathematically um, but if you like to picture it excuse me um, a ball rolling down a hill uh, so it's not actually a ball it's the inflaton field it's a quantum field and the potential is also coming from particle physics we don't know where it came from um, but that's the most popular idea um, if the ball rolled down it caused the inflation and so the thing with inflation is as it expands the universe or stretches out the universe so rapidly everything cools down and but we know that the universe had to heat up again and because we can see the galaxies forming we can see the stars forming so there had to be some way for the universe to reheat um so as the inflaton rolled down it could have oscillated and while the oscillation took place it transferred this energy to back to the universe so this is called reheating and this is actually my research topic understanding how the inflation ended and transferred this energy back to the universe because it had to transfer it back somehow so the question is how did it transfer back uh, there are other theories, of course, but this is the most natural way for the inflaton field to reheat because we know the universe had to reheat, uh, get reheated somehow. Well, uh, so your particular research or the, the research that you're interested in the most, um, which um, which of these levels are you mostly working on out of the four that you just uh, well, told me? So I'm not really, no one, I don't think anyone is working on multiverse theory. Uh, Okay, <laughs> well, let's eliminate that one. <laughs> yeah, so it, these are speculations, things to think about. Um, but you can also, as in you can do um, mathematical formation on this, but I don't know of anyone who's actually actively working on this. I know Alan Good has papers on this, like he has been writing papers on, the person who came up with inflation, he has been talking a lot about multiverse theories and all this. But my research is <laughs> much more physical, not, the abstract things is um, assuming inflation did happen. How did the inflaton decay and reheat the universe and um, finding a way to unify inflation theory and dark energy? Because that's the other thing I'm very interested in, find, explaining what dark energy is, because right now it's, um, you know, it's still a mystery. We don't know where dark energy came from, even though it contributes to about 70% of the total energy density of the universe. Um, so dark matter, we have no clue. Dark energy, we have no clue. But at least the, there's, there could be a way to unify inflation and dark energy. And it's interesting um, that I bring up the unification because this is something uh, very, it's been around for a long, long time, unifying theories. Um, this is something most physicists think about. It keeps them up at night. Like, is there a way to unify? So there are four fundamental forces in nature currently. And could it be possible that all four could be unified to form the theory of everything? So three of the forces could, uh, could be combined to or explained by a single theory called the grand unified theory or gut. And then combining all four would, you know, give the theory of everything. So, what I'm working on is, you know, 
one of those unifications, not the Gannon criteria theory of everything, but at combining or finding a way to explain dark energy coming from inflation, because it looks very plausible that inflation did take place. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of details there. <laughs> Um, let's, uh, let's uh, take a step back for a second here, because um, you mentioned the theory, the theory of everything, the research that you're doing right now. Um, what does that contribute to in the end, what uh, real life kind of uh, practical applications would it have? Would, would it actually help to discover, you know, um, how we all came to be? Is that is that really where you're kind of going with this? Um, yeah, so that's always the end goal. Um, and obviously not one person can do it. It's a collective thing that the whole, a lot of scientists uh, have been doing and they can achieve if you work collectively. So what I'm trying to do right now, it's just looking what happens after inflation because we can observe the universe and we can um, you know, find out things about inflation because inflation could have taken place in, a diff in different ways the potential, the hill that I was talking about could have different shapes. So, you know, the more we learn about inflation, because that's what I'm trying to do, finding, learning more about what the inflation potential look like, the properties of the inflaton field, the more we learn about that, um, the further back we can go. So if you learn about the inflation potential, maybe it comes from the grand unified theory. So we can trace backwards and find that theory that combine three of the fundamental forces. Um, and then later theory of everything, that's, uh, we are very far from that. But currently um, that's the main goal. Like keep going back to find the granular theory. And it doesn't really have any implications on, you know, technologies as it kind of does because we keep building um, satellites and we're sending them. NASA is very involved in this research but it's mainly answering the profound questions like how the universe began what's you know how life formed it's only how life formed i mean how, how the universe formed because you need the universe for life to form uh, so it's answering the profound questions that's the direction um you know taking my research Fantastic. Uh, so then now I have to ask, uh, inflation happened, or we, we think it happened. Um, could it happen again? Or is this something that just happens once? So when I say inflation, it's a rapid stretching of the universe. Currently, we enter the second stretching phase. So I mentioned dark energy. So currently, um, so it was discovered in 1998 the universe is undergoing a second phase of stretching. So it is happening again. So you're on point about that. Um, and it's not happening because of a, you know, inflaton field rolling, but it's happening because of an unknown component, uh, which is dark energy. Um, but we don't know where it came from. We don't know the um, dark energy could be a property of space itself, or maybe, um, there's an unknown particle we haven't discovered yet. So it could be anything, but it looks like um, our universe is um, stretching again. So interestingly, um, dark energy, to explain it, use this term, it's called the cosmological constant. And Einstein is the one who came up with this term. But when he came up with it, he didn't know the universe is expanding or stretching. He thought the universe is static. 
and we also knew their galaxies and stars. So if you have a static universe, which is not moving, it the galaxies and all due to gravity would cause them to collapse. So Einstein introduced this term in his equations, in theory of relativity, the theory of gravity, introduced a term and said, you need this term to repel the gravitational forces to keep the universe static because people thought the universe is just not moving. So when it was found, the universe is not actually static, but it's stretching very rapidly. He took away this, his term and he was like, oh, that this is my greatest blunder. He didn't, I don't know if he actually said it, but you know, um, he, he took away the Lambda term. But once it was found out that the universe is going uh, undergoing another phase of inflation, it's not deinflation, but another phase of inflation, um, that term was resurrected. And so Einstein, even though he didn't know at the time, his term has been added back to the equation to explain dark energy. So that term that he introduced to provide a repel force to, uh, to fight against gravity, uh, we introduced that back and we were saying that that term is probably what dark energy is. Even though we don't know where that term came from, uh, came from um, that term is could be in explaining dark energy and causing this second phase of, uh, we call it accelerated expansion because expansion is not only, so space is not ex only expanding, it's expanding at an accelerated rate. The rate of expansion is increasing and increasing over time. So this second, so let's call it um, an expansion then, this second expansion, uh, does it have any practical applications to like Earth, for example? <laughs> uh, not really, uh, because okay. um, if you look at the galaxies nearby, we are closely, they're bounded as in because of gravitational forces, they're you know always going to be around each other. Well, not always. If you go way past, like in the future, then eventually they'll get separated. But the expansion is happening happening at a large, large cosmological scale. If you just look at a tiny portion, and if you have like two galaxies are you know are revolving each other, it's not going to affect them. It only affects much, much larger scales. So if you look at uh, a supernova or a galaxy which is very far away, you can see that it's going away from you because of the stretching of the universe. Not because it's you know moving away by itself, but because of the stretching of the universe, that's why it's um, going further and further away. Okay, I had to ask because I'm sure that we have some listeners going, oh my God, the universe is stretching again. <laughs> and so it's just so people understand, we're kind of like, you know, in the grand scheme of things, kind of like a drop in the ocean compared to the to the the universe, right? I mean, you know, it's a it. You're really a scientist that looks at such greater scale, like the big, big, big picture, and everything must be very mathematical, isn't it? Um, most things are mathematical. That's true, but we still have to picture things because. If everything is so abstract, then it's hard to understand what's going on. Um, but you know, so cosmology is not just like one area; it includes things like particle physics and quantum mechanics. So particle physics is um, so the field that I'm working on is you could say it's particle cosmology because 
you have particle physics and cosmology. Um, so it's math mathematical, but you have to, you know, change your ideas about what particles are. So when you see an electron, you think, okay, this is a particle. But the way we understand it is it's an inf uh, infinite field. So it permeates all of space-time and it's an excitation in the field. So just like the Higgs boson, um, uh, it's a Higgs field that permeates all of space-time and you have an excitation of that field is the Higgs boson, is a particle, um, the Higgs particle. So changing our interpretation of everything, changing interpretation of reality. So that's kind of how things are when you work on cosmology and particle physics for a long time. Um, it just changes the way, you know, you see things. It is mathematical, but, you know, whenever you're doing any math, you have to think about, okay, so it's not just happening here. It's happening everywhere in, in space-time. And uh, so... <laughs> does it, does it, um, does this kind of research cause you sometimes to think philosophically, you know, or to change your, your, your thoughts about all sorts of philosophical topics? Like, what, what what's that like on a kind of more, you know... Um, yeah, I guess a philosophical level. Yeah, so there are certain things that do have philosophical answers, and there's intersections. There are you know, fun things to talk about when I meet someone who is a philosopher. There are cool things to talk about. Uh, for example, uh, the lambda term that I talked about, it's the number is very, very, very tiny. And we have absolutely no idea why that number is so tiny. Because if this number was slightly larger, just a tiny bit larger, then the galaxies would have never formed, planets would never formed, and life wouldn't exist. If the number was a little bit smaller, then the universe would collapse, and you wouldn't have life either way. So there is a philosophical answer behind this. Why is this number um, fine-tuned, so fine-tuned, that allowed all the galaxies and planets to form and eventually life. And the answer um, is saying that, what if the universe chose these parameters so that it could form life, so that we could ask the question of why it chose these parameters. So it's called the anthropic principle. There are multiple versions of it. This is a simplified version, but the universe is the way it is because there's a conscience to ask why it is the way it is. So these are philosophical, a lot of physicists would probably not like this answer <laughs> um, because you can actually well, I mean, it. No. it plays into religion. It plays into philosophy. It plays into the arts. It plays into science. I think um, th this is the, the thing that people don't understand about science oftentimes is that you, ha you come at it from different approaches and you have scientists that don't get along, you know? I mean, I'm sure in your field, you have people with very strong opinions about uh, different perspectives, don't you? Uh, so in science, if you don't have the evidence, then people don't really value. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> you can have opinions, but it's all evidence-based. If you don't have an evidence behind, say if you say, um, oh, there's multiverses, but I don't have no proof of that, then okay, maybe, but no one's going to actively you know, do research on that because you have to have ways to test it. So the things that I'm working on, we can test it because we have satellites that can make observations. But 
having opinions on things and not having evidence usually in most cases it's not really valued um, even when like even if you have been working on a field for a long long time you still need evidence to you know prove it and that's what right. so in many talks when you see people think you know new discoveries they spend most of the time showing why it's true all the details the methods they use all the observations they won't just say so i think this is true because that's my opinion no one's going to say that <laughs> so. right but you often i mean um you see people who have you know evidence uh, to support their theories or whatever um but also like in science you do have uh, a theoretical scientist, right? I mean, people who don't have the evidence, but they really kind of lean towards, like the multiverse, um, you know, the 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 level three theory, the many worlds theory. I'm sure you have some hardcore scientists that really strongly believe that that's what it is. Yeah. So the thing with theorists, so things are changing currently. So right now, more and more theorists are working with experimentalists or observationalists. So if you just have a theory and you don't have anything to prove it, then the theory is just a theory. It, uh, if you are an observer, um, observational cosmologist, and you observe things and you can make sense of the data, it's pointless. So more and more uh, theories are working uh, with experimentalists uh, and observationalists because this way you can make the connections. So currently you will see like cosmology is a field of collaborations. You don't have a person working on just theory. You would always have big, large collaborations where observationalists are working with theorists, and that's how you can make the connections. Because no one wants their theory to be a theory forever. They want to test right. it and modify the theory, just like inflation. Uh, the more we test it, so every few years, um, the more time goes, the more data we have, the more we know about the inflation field, um, the inflation field and the potential. So. We keep observing and then changing our theory to get it to more accurate. So that's been ongoing because we're all working together. Okay, so we have a we have about um, I don't know almost fifteen minutes left. I'm curious to know what are some um, I don't know maybe advances in research or potential advances in research that you're most excited about. Well, I'm into space exploration, just like a lot of people, and I'm following uh, Elon Musk's uh, the SN tests, and you know, well, you know, seeing what could happen going to Mars, um, because you know, our civilization is a matter of time. We're going to take over the solar system. We're going to multi-planetary species, but we don't know when it's going to happen. So. Elon Musk is here, so you know he's expediting everything. So I'm very excited about this. Like in my lifetime, we probably the first humans would, um, you know, step on Mars. So I'm excited about that. Um, so right now, advances. Let me think. Um, yeah, I think that it's mainly coming from the astrobiology, finding life, because. Nothing that exciting has happened uh, other than gravitational waves. So recently, um, I just discovered that, you know, we can see gravitational waves from black holes mergers. So this was a big, big leap. So I got to see gravitational waves. Um, I didn't get into that. But this is a huge leap because we can finally kind of directly observe you know, black holes colliding, uh, neutron stars colliding. 
and also the Higgs boson. So this has been around since 1960s. Um, this was a prediction. It was a theory um, in 1960s that there could be a particle called or a field called the Higgs, Higgs field. And 2012 is finally when we discovered it in our, our particle like Higgs in the Large Hadron Collider in Geneva. Uh, so these are huge, huge leaps. Maybe it's not going to be, you know, <laughs> that exciting for everyone, but this is a huge accomplishment in particle physics. We added a new particle in the standard model. So the standard model is not complete. We know that, but adding a new particle that explains so much. It also has its problems, but it also explains many, many things uh, about our universe and of particle physics. So um, gravitational waves, astrobiology, and Higgs particle, um, not necessarily in that order, but all three are very exciting for me. Very cool. Um, before before we go, what, one of the things I really like to do when I have a scientist on the show is get to know them as a person more. So I'm really curious to know outside of schooling, outside of research, outside of geeking out about space, uh, what are you into? I love soccer. Um, we call it football, but in the U.S. it's soccer. <laughs> and uh, I've been into soccer for a long, long time. I've been following, so I usually watch Spanish League, English Premier League, and Champions League, all that. And we also play soccer here all the time. So that's my, I'm really passionate about that. And who's your team? First of all, tell me who you are. Oh, it's Real Madrid, definitely. Okay, okay, go on. (laughs) Um, And um, other than that, I play the classical guitar. So I've been playing guitar for a while. And we have a small band here, uh, all grad students. uh, So we usually perform. So I, you know, it's soothing to practice um, when I'm, you know, Swamp would work, just leave everything, play classical guitar. Uh, so that's the other thing. And obviously traveling, because I'm in Washington. And the best thing about Washington is all the national parks that are nearby. Uh, we have Mount Rainier nearby. Um, Vancouver is in diving distance. We have um, Wyoming, Montana. So we have Yellowstone, far away, but still driving distance. So that's one of the, one of the nice things about here getting to travel and just the drive is the best part and also (laughs) camping and hiking. That's really neat. The classical guitar is is a surprise. I had no idea. Um, So do you, what kind of music do you usually play? Is it really classical music or like, do you guys compose stuff? No, we don't really compose. We (laughs) cover things. Um, So classical guitar is a Spanish guitar. So I do like the Spanish style of playing. So Spanish finger style guitar playing. Um, it's, so you have the long nails? Um, sometimes. <laughs> okay. Sometimes. But, you know, there's strumming patterns. They're pretty different from, you know, when you have the acoustic guitar. Well, you know, I play acoustic too, and I used to play electric guitar. Uh, but this kind of has a different feel. Um, finger style, plucking style, like different plucking styles. Um but, you know, when you have a band, then you can actually have Spanish because we're all from Bangladesh or one of our band members were from Kolkata, from India. Uh, so the songs we would, you know, practice is all you know, popular songs in our country, in our language. So that's what we'd mostly play, popular songs, okay. because usually we have events where you perform. So that's why we need to <laughs> stick to the songs we know and 
in my spare time, I do learn uh, Spanish style, finger style stuff. Do you guys have a, like a YouTube channel or anything? Uh, no, it's a short lived band. It keeps changing because every year we have new grad <laughs> students and then they leave. <laughs> so we don't really have all that. It's just, you know, it's just for fun. It's fun hobby. It's, it's a nice way to spend time over weekends. Yeah, it is. Uh, you know, it's again. I'm I'm very curious sometimes because a lot of scientists have very artistic hobbies. They tend to have like whether they paint or they draw or they, in your case they play music. So I think it's uh, there's something there's some. I'm, I swear to God, there's a link between the arts and science, <laughs> and I think it has something to do with the exploration and the creativity that you guys all have in common. You know. So yeah, I I, I don't know. I just um. Do you, do you have any thoughts on uh, the, the link between artists and... <laughs> yeah, I haven't thought about that, but it's true. I've made that observation. Like, a lot of scientists, they have uh, hobbies. Um, I know like physicists, mathematicians, they love playing chess. They like things where you have to think. But in my case, <clears throat> I think most scientists, other than you know whatever creative hobbies they have, most most of us like intellectual conversations, like talking about things, especially with people in different fields. Like yeah, I you know hang out with physicists all the time, but if I meet a philosopher or biologist or evolutionary biologist, then you can talk about so many different things that you have never you know really know about. Mm -hmm. So that's I think something a lot of other scientists share conversing with people who are in a different field and learning about the different aspects. Um, I think that's something very common with uh, among scientists. And, that, and that's really curious because artists do that as well. So a lot of like performing artists will uh, have uh, great conversations with film directors or they'll have great conversations with a uh, painter, will have a great conversation with a cello player, you know, like, mm -hmm. so you have this kind of weird camaraderie that, that happens within the, the scope of the, their respective industries. Um, on that note, now I'm really curious to know if you could... Uh, have a conversation with um, three different people in three different fields, uh, what topics or what fields would you choose? Well, anything really. Because the thing that I enjoy learning about is history and evolutionary biology as well. So I, I, I can learn about how civilizations evolve over time. And that's some things I do watch, <laughs> read about history and history channels. Um, evolution is something I'm very curious about because we keep finding new things about you know, how uh, humans evolve over time. What else? Well, these are my interests. I don't know <laughs> if you can make connections, but it's always uh, you know conversing and learning about those fields because civilization and evolutionary biology, those are two things. Um, archaeology sometimes. Um, yeah, I think you know, in terms of science, um, but I do know a lot of astronomers and you know, space explorations. So those are connected, very connected. Astrophysics, astronomy, cosmology, particle physics. Connected. Of course. But beyond that, I would say, yeah, so civilizations and so history and so Richard uh, Dawkins, like I follow his talks and he's an evolutionary biologist. Um, yeah, so that's something I'm curious about. And there are also talks like Neil deGrasse Tyson and Richard Dawkins. 
uh, those are very interesting because you see two totally different fields and they're talking about things even though they don't understand that it's not their field of expertise but they can still they know the way the scientific way of how things work uh, so it's interesting even though different fields you still have the same way you have evidence and that's how you come up with conclusions that's not changing even regardless of which field you're working on True. And they're very good at explaining things for the public. Uh, we have about two minutes left. So very quickly, um, what is your dream job? Um, dream job. <laughs> I just want to be able to continue doing research. So it doesn't really matter whether I'm a faculty at a university or doing full-time research at a lab. Um, let's say I'm working at Na in NASA or work at CERN, wherever it is. If I am able to continue doing research and learning new and new things, that's all that matters. It's not like, oh, I need to work at this particular place. It's just having the opportunity to do research. And because it's all collaborative, now I can work with people who are in different parts of the world. And now, because of the pandemic, we can do it more now because <laughs> it's all online. So keeping up with what's happening around the world with other researchers and working with them that's the dream, like keeping up with the uh, state of state of the art research and working on that, being a part of that. So being part of this journey of finding new things, new answers in physics and about reality. That sounds like a very, very uh, achievable goal for you, and uh, I really hope it works out. Uh, Islam Khan, thank you so much for joining me on the on the program. Your enthusiasm has been just uh, infectious. Uh, I feel uh, more educated and more excited about the greater picture when it comes to space and the universe. So thank you for that. I really appreciate it. Yeah, certainly. It's a pleasure.